Hello, my fellow fallible humans. My name is Tanya McIntyre, and this is the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. On today's episode of Red Roof Recovery, I'm joined by my best friend and my life partner, Sir Lancelot, I call him. Hello, my darling. Thanks for being here. Hello, my love. Thanks for allowing me to be with you again. Well, I like when you're here because when you're talking, I can have a sip of my water and your presence helps ease a little bit of the anxiety I feel around uh, public speaking. Yes. Yes, that's, uh, that's traumatizing for a lot of people. <laughs> and you, who are essentially an introvert, um, I would have expected you to have some anxiety around this platform, but you seem to uh, shine. So I'm grateful for that as well. I'm not sure shine. Um, it doesn't seem to bother me. I don't know why, but. Well, I'm certainly grateful that you are willing to bring your family perspective uh, to these complex topics around addiction because you lived with me through my drug and alcohol addictions for more than 20 years. And I'm grateful that you uh, stayed the course. You were worth it. Oh, well, thank you. It took me a long time to get to a place where I believe I am worth it. So thanks for that. So what are we talking about? We talked last week about trauma and its connection. Yeah, so last time so last time we spoke about the trauma and how it's a main driver. Right. Of addiction. And uh, I thought this time we can talk about um, the tools that you've used on your recovery that you know you use to re rewire, recalibrate the way you thought how those tools helped you overcome, as you say, one of your drivers led you to a space where you didn't particularly like yourself, which I think is one of the main things you hear during when you speak to people with addiction. They don't really like themselves, either from the past or what they're doing. So maybe we can talk about the main tools that you've used. Yeah. Mm. So what are some of those? What's the main tool that you think that started you off on your journey? Hmm. I think I, the one I talk about the most now, uh, I'm a facilitator with a program called SMART, Self-Management and Recovery Training. And SMART is an evidence-based program for addiction recovery. And what I've learned in SMART, um, a few things actually, which is why I'm still with them several years later, because it uh, has sustained my recovery. So my recovery journey started, as you know, in 2009, when I checked myself into a 30-day rehab. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the main model of recovery, is that there is a minimum stay of 30 days in a dorm-like facility. And the model of recovery is generally the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I am indoctrinated by 12 steps you'll often hear me say aa saved my life and smart gave me my life back i went in search of another program because in aa i was relapsing every year and a lot of that i hid from you what was happening in 12 steps i love the peer support i still go to 12 step meetings and a lot of my peers were not returning from their relapses. And I knew it was just gonna be a matter of time before I didn't return from one of mine. Mm -hmm. 
So I went in search of an alternative that I could bring to my community that might uh, help me from relapsing and help my peers who were looking for something else as well. And the pickings were slim when I went looking in 2018. Uh, SMART resonated with me for a couple of reasons. It was founded by doctors and it was founded in 1994 in a place called Mentor, Ohio. And mentorship has always been quite relevant to my life. So I started uh, into SMART and it resonated with me. It's cognitive therapy, cognitive being thinking. Uh, the premise being that if we can change the way we think, we can change the way we behave. So that made sense to me. And one of the main things that I embraced right away is that SMART discourages the use of labels because in 12-step meetings, of course, when you're going around the, the circle to share, uh, I was used to saying, hi, my name is Tanya and I'm an addict or hi, I'm Tanya and I'm an alcoholic. In SMART, we're not encouraged to use labels because we are not our addictions. And I like that. So now when I go to 12-step meetings, I say, hi, I'm Tanya, and I'm grateful to have another day free from drug and alcohol addictions. And that does a couple of things for me. It makes me feel better. And it often opens up a conversation with somebody after the meeting. They'll come over and say, I noticed that you didn't say that you, know, you are an alcoholic or an addict. And then I can talk about my experience with cognitive therapy, with SMART, and how well it's working for me. I'm very passionate about this, as you know, which is why I'm now a certified facilitator with SMART. I host uh, several meetings every week. Uh, my vocation now is working with people and their family members who are struggling with addictions. I love it. I am finally loving what I do. And the, the tools, there's hundreds of tools that we can use in recovery. The key, another great acronym, keep educating yourself, the key is to find something that works for you because my addiction is different than your, you know, whoever's addiction. We're all different animals. And Tanya. even for you, right? I mean, you, you're, you're not addicted to anything. And I, you know, I, I think, wow, you're so lucky. But, you know, I mean, obviously there's lots of people who can go out and have a few drinks and not drink for days and weeks and months at a time. I find that fascinating. I used to find it fascinating when I'd see somebody get up from a, a dining room table and leave some wine in their glass. It's like, oh, look, there's wine left. Yeah. How, how can anybody walk away from wine left in their glass? I have never done that in my life. Yeah, it's the old joke, isn't it? What do you do with leftover wine? What's leftover wine? <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, I, I love your perspective, the fact that uh, as a family member, you know, I talk to family members all the time, the most difficult thing for them to hear when they say, what can I do to help uh, my loved one who's struggling in addiction? There's nothing you can do to help. What you have to do is help yourself, which is not what family members want to hear, right? They, they don't no. think it's about them, but it is, it's about self-care. No, it's because we, you know, everyone wants to help their loved one. Absolutely. But the only thing you can really do is to look after yourself. So hopefully your loved one gets to the point where they want to stop their addictive behavior, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which, as you all know, isn't a smooth path. 
It is not. And I think you were helpful just because of your personality. You, you know, you tend to be uh, calm centered to begin with and probably not very expressive around your emotions, which probably was more helpful because you, you weren't, you weren't offering me ultimatums. You weren't um, confronting me very much. And there's definitely a mode of communication that is more helpful around dealing with people who are struggling with addictions. In the family and friends component of SMART, uh, they do special meetings for family and friends, and they talk about various tools that family members can use when communicating with their loved ones who are challenged with addictions. And there is a specific way, a communication skill that can be used that can often help people struggling with addiction seek recovery sooner than later. And I don't know if you and I have ever talked about it, sweetheart. It's uh, the pious, pious, positive, I statements, understanding, sharing, the pious template. And if, uh, if you're listening in and you want to have a copy of that template, just please email me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com and I'm happy to send you that. It's really helpful to plan your conversation beforehand. And even if you can find somebody to role play conversations with you, I'm also happy to do that with you. It's, uh, it's very effective when you can learn to modify your communication for more effectiveness. Okay. So I think the going down the family thing is food for another show, but this show is all about the tools. The tools. Right. I went down the other rabbit hole. Sorry. You went around down the other rabbit hole, which isn't unusual. So let's <laughs> talk about you came out of recover, uh, the uh, recovery center in 2009 and start to relapse <clears throat> so as you say it saved your life i remember going to seville and meeting you in the driveway of the facility and i thought i've got my my wife back you were sparkly eyed and vivacious but i hadn't seen in a number of years and then you know life gets in the way and you had your relapses and as you say, you found smart recovery, something that works for you. Not going to work for everyone, but work for you. So when you started smart and you delved into your past trauma, which was obviously one of one of the main drivers that took you down the addiction path, mm-hmm. what was the first tool that you used to become aware of, should we say, what was driving your, your addictions? I think that's the best place to start because awareness is the first, the first step. It is the first step. Uh, we need to bring the pain to conscious awareness, which is what I never wanted to do, which is why I self-medicated my emotions for most of my adult life. And I think it was uh, probably in the beginning, it was listening to, to doctors like Dr. Gabor Mate. He's one of my favorite mentors. And he's the Canadian doctor who worked in Vancouver's East Side for a dozen years. And Vancouver's East Side is said to be the most densely populated, chronically addicted population in North America, if not the world. 
So he was immersed in that segment of the population for a, a big chunk of his career. And he said, we need to stop asking why the addiction and start asking why the pain? Because in his experience, he said trauma is the common thread with people who are challenged by addiction. So I thought about that because, you know, we dismiss trauma because everybody has experienced some kind of trauma at some point in their lives. And as a society, I think we are very dismissive of that trauma. I mean, we have prisons filled with people who are there because of addictions, which are the result of childhood trauma. And it's the wrong approach that that's the kind of society we live in. So my daily motto is, well, what can I do from where I am with what I have today? Uh, acceptance has been the main tool for me, unconditional acceptance uh, of myself, of others and of life. Reach, you know, I always had lots of conditional acceptance on myself, others in life. So I think getting to a point of unconditional acceptance has been huge. And it's something I work on every day. In fact, I was just working on something called the Unconditional Acceptance Manifesto because I'm going to uh, start building a community of people who resonate with what I say and practice and what works for me. And this unconditional acceptance has been a huge part of my recovery, my successful and sustainable recovery, because I couldn't accept that I would never be able to sit down and enjoy a glass of wine with dinner. I didn't want to accept that I would have to change my lifestyle. I couldn't socialize the way I used to socialize because I was basically an introvert forcing myself to be an extrovert in uh, certain social circles where I would network. Yeah, so I, I think remember. Sorry? I remember when we first met, I thought you were, I thought you were an extrovert. I thought you, you were the yin to my yang because I've always been an introvert. You know. Although over the last couple of years, we seem to have swapped a little bit of our personalities. They say that what, that's what happens when you've been around uh, a partner for a long time. We just uh, recently, in nine, what, we're, we were married in 1991 and we're recording this in 2022. So we recently celebrated 31 years of marriage bliss. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that sarcastically. It, uh, you know, I, I look, look at this 31 years and I'm thinking, wow, that went fast. And I really still not only love you, but I still really, really like you. You're a wonderful man. And I, you're the top of my uh, gratitude every day. I, I think that's the foundation of anything, liking the person you're with. Again, we digress. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. Thanks for keeping me on track. You, so was the, the tool of the unconditional acceptance the first one you started to use? To No, I think the first one I started to use uh, was the cost-benefit analysis. I had to start looking at what were the benefits to my addiction. And until I really took a good, long, hard look at what the benefits were, for me continuing to drink and drug, and then to look at the costs of those addictions, and then 
the bottom quadrant of that exercise is to then look at the, the costs of not using and the benefits of not using. So it's, it's a four block quadrant exercise that you can get at the smartrecovery.org website. You just uh, go into the toolbox, the resources, uh, you mm -hmm. click on resources and then down to the toolbox and it's the CBA, cost benefit analysis. And we even use that with you, hon, for you yeah. to decide to retire sooner than later. You can use it for any major decision that you're struggling with. It really helps get it out of your head and onto paper. So you can, that's what rational emotive behavior therapy uh, that's taught in places like SMART. Rational emotive behavior therapy teaches me to direct rational analysis inward instead of directing retribution outward, which is what I used to do. As you know, you were uh, the recipient of a lot of my retribution and I apologize for that profusely. But that's, I was full of rage and anger. It, and it was, what, you, what people have to understand is that your retributions and your sometimes volatile uh, personality you shouldn't apologize for that. It was my decision to stay within the relationship. I could have walked out at any time. So you're apologizing for something that you did that was, the result was beyond your control. Well, I was thank you, sweetheart, but it's I was the only one in control of my, my thoughts, my stuff. I could have left at any time when I thought you'd overstepped the mark. And I didn't, because I thought you was worth it. But, what I'd like to talk about, because this certainly seems strange to me when you first brought it up, that there would be any benefit, and I would imagine a lot of people would think, benefits to an addiction. Like, that just seems like an oxymoron to most people, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. you know, when you say you do a cost-benefit analysis, now, should we say a person without any of, we all have small addictions, but most of them are not, shall we say, uh, life-threatening or altering. You know, everyone has their little foibles. But to have a an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction or a gambling addiction, shall we say, something that can be totally life-changing and life-threatening, to say there's a benefit to it would seem to the person standing on the outside as benefit. What benefit? Well, if there wasn't a benefit, why would we do it? I mean, most oh, people who are struggling with addictions are very intelligent people. Uh, so definitely there's benefits to it. Let me read you a few of mine. Yeah, please do. I mean, that'd be good. So it lowered inhibitions. It relieved my anxiety and stress. It was relaxing, soothing, comforting. It was like a warm, soft hug. It got me high. It gave me a sense of control. It filled an emotional void. It helped me escape reality. I felt free. It was occasionally fun. It felt good. It broke the monotony of life. It was a social lubricant. It let the vice grips off my personality. So those are some of the benefits. And then we're encouraged to go down the list again and mark them as long-term or short-term benefits. And of course, the whole list is a short-term benefit, right? It only existed as long as I was drunk or high. Mm -hmm. And then the costs of using <clears throat> lowered inhibitions. That was also a cost. 
uh, the isolation, the depression, the debt, the money it was costing. It created a pattern that, um, well, not so much me, but uh, I wanted to be a better example for the children in my life. So it created a pattern that um, I wasn't proud of. Hurting myself and hurting my loved ones. A deadly risk while driving, danger to life, health and safety. I used to drug and drive, drink and drive, thinking that it, I was actually a better driver, believe it or not. I was just one of the lucky ones that just didn't get caught. A lot of my peers are in prison for having killed somebody while driving drunk or drugged. Uh, destruction of relationships. I was very fortunate to not have lost you. Um, the shame. Great deal of shame, heavy, heavy shame. Uh, and temporary relief. So that's a cost of uh, the addiction. And then you go down that list again, and are they long-term or short-term? And of course, all the costs are long-term. And then on the bottom part now, you've got two more quadrants to this exercise. You do the benefits and the costs of not using, not drugging, drinking, whatever, gambling. So for me, the long-term benefits were regaining my relationships, giving me clarity, hope, ability to solve my problems. I was healthier, it improved my safety. <laughs> I was more productive, it improved my self-esteem, my self-respect, I was more authentic, more free time, easier to self-love. I was getting much better sleep, more money, easier to see the underlying conditions causing my addictions. No more hiding behind lies, peace and serenity, less anxiety and joy of moving on, JOMO. So a lot of people say uh, the fear of missing out, FOMO is what keeps them using. And I, I kind of joke and say, let's turn FOMO into JOMO, joy of moving on. And all of those benefits of not using are long-term. And then you look at the costs of not using. Well, facing people the day after a lapse or relapse, again, carrying that shame, the FOMO, fear of missing out, learning how to solve my problems, learning to accept life on life's terms, having to face and deal with the impulsive need to have instant gratification, Harder to get to know coworkers, harder to socialize, and then accountable accountability for my actions. Internalized stigma is a big one. Learning the hard way, who is with you and who isn't. And then all of those costs, of course, are short-term. So reflecting on something like this, just something as simple as a four-quadrant exercise of getting it out of my head and onto paper, and reflecting on that, I think was, uh, it offered me a big aha moment. Mm -hmm. So do you still use the cost benefit analysis? Is Absolutely. It a, yeah, I do one every quarter, every three months. So it is one of these things that, again, the, the journey from addiction to non-addiction is always ongoing. Absolutely. When people ask me, when am I cured? Well, unfortunately, uh, if you're looking at it as the end, you're going to see an end to this process. There is no end to it. It becomes a way of life because you're changing how you think so you can change how you think and feel and all of that combined then will create better behaviors. 
And that takes time. It takes a, a persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help ourselves. And that's part of life. You know, the important part, I think, of any recovery journey is to have a, a plan, a structured routine has been paramount in my sustainable recovery. Okay, so when when people do this cost balance analysis and they look at all the things and they ask the question, when will it be over? What, what are they actually talking about? When they can go out and socially drink with their friends? When when they can just forget about everything? What do people say is the goal for it to be over? Well, I think that's when romantic recollection comes in, right? That's what I used to fall into that trap of romantic recollection, that when do I get my life back? Because we think that was better for some reason. That's why the cost benefit analysis is a good reflection, a reminder of no, those, those benefits were all short-term and look at the costs that it took for those short-term benefits. It was short-lived, it's temporary, and this is just romantic recollection. It's irrational thought patterns, which is what rationally motivated behavior therapy teaches us to do, is to look at your thoughts, question, analyze, and you're reprogramming, you're recalibrating this uh, this or this chemical organ, this brain is a chemical organ that functions on about 80 different chemicals. And our job, the, the thing that we have working for us is that it's, it's the neuroplasticity of our brain. We can literally reprogram it, but it takes patience, practice and persistence. And it takes a persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help ourselves where we systematically apply and reapply the tools that we find that work for us, right? That's the key. You need to find something that works for you, something you're going to do every day. Recovery doesn't take long. It doesn't take 30 days. It doesn't take 60 days. It doesn't take 90 days in a rehab. It takes a persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help yourself. And that just takes time and consistency, practice, patience, and persistence because you are retraining your subconscious mind. 95% of our behaviors come from our subconscious mind. Only 5% of our behavior comes from uh, our conscious mind. So we bring things to conscious awareness. We repeat the process because we are recalibrating our, our subconscious mind so that then it, that becomes the more helpful thought patterns will then become your default mode of thinking, which is the recalibrating, the reprogramming. And it's easy. It's easy and it doesn't take a long time. It takes 10 minutes a day of persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help yourself. Well, I, I think giving up takes a second to say, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore and I'm determined to give up something, whatever it is, is that split second when you say, I've had enough of doing this. Putting that into practice is the the learning mm -hmm. that you go through. Using tools like, as you say, you started off with the CBA. I think a lot of the, um, I can remember when I used to work on the tools and then went into management. And every now and again, I would I would go out and do a job on, on the shop floor. And people used to ask me why. 
And I used to tell them it was to remind me that I wasn't as good as I thought I was, and it takes a lot longer than I thought it does now. Because we all have that in our, mem our, our head that, you know, things were easier, things were better, things were nicer, or on the other hand, things are worse, things and you should pick up a drink because of that, or you should, you can do it now because it wasn't as bad as you think. I think that's, I think everyone's brain does that for whatever reason. It's, you know, humans are fascinating. We sure are. We are fallible as well. So that unconditional self-acceptance piece, I think, is huge. Thank you, my darling husband. Thank you for being uh, by my side. I love you. Okay, so we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to go through what next on the tools on the next show. We will. It goes fast, doesn't it? It certainly does. And thank you for being here with us, spending 30 minutes of your time to learn about the different tools of recovery, because there are literally hundreds of tools to choose from. The key is to find what works for you, and the key is to keep educating yourself. Uh, please, if you've gotten something helpful from this, share it with your friends. Come back and support us every week. And if you need any help at all, reach out to me at Red Roof Recovery at gmail.com. My wish for you is to always live well, laugh often, love always, stay positive, and be mindful. Be gentle with yourself. May the force be with you, and remember, you are the force.